0: Welcome to Robot Friends, a podcast that actively harms its audience. Episode 11, Eigenrobot versus Sagar. Hi, all. This is the last of three podcasts in this, this absolute, I don't want to say death march, but I guess I already have, of a, of a day of recording podcasts. Uh, I'm here with Sagar. Uh, who for whom it is much earlier in the morning, and we're going to talk about, oh, geez, how would you describe this? Um, I, I guess it originated with Visa's idea of a, a large influx of Indians um, into English-speaking Twitter and what that might look like and, and some of the events that have surrounded that. So, uh, Sagara, do you want to introduce yourself a bit?
1: Yeah, sure. Hi. Uh, first off, I can't believe I'm actually talking to the robot, the preeminent robot on the internet. Oh gosh, <laughs> I've been I've been, I've been uh, following you and a big fan, longtime lurker. Uh, so it's pretty great to actually get to talk to you. Um, yeah. So about me, um, I, yeah, I am I am a guy from India. Uh, I was um, I wasn't exactly born in Mumbai. I was born in a small village uh, in the north northwestern region of India, and uh, but I was raised in Mumbai, like all my life uh, till I was twenty one. So I had school there, college there, I went. I got all my education in India. and then for the last more than a little more than a decade, I left India to live and work across eight countries and traveled a whole lot more.
0: that's that's really impressive. So how how did that journey go? Is that pretty typical?
1: It's it's I wouldn't say it's typical, uh, especially of my generation. So by my generation, I would say someone who finished their bachelor's uh, between 2005 and 2010. I would count that as a generation in in India, because Mm -hmm. at that time, um, there was a clear cut idea in India and Indian society, especially in the middle class. So there are three um, ideas to start like kind of understanding where I come from, uh, you know, the Indian mindset back when Indians started to get into get online and indians started to get online because of infrastructure right um it's it's still it is still by most markers a very poor country and mm. um it is only around it is exactly that time that 2005 to 2010 that even someone like me had access to reliable uh, stable fast enough you know and by fast enough i'm talking something that's slightly better than a 56 kbps connection um mm. so go, sorry do you want to Do you have a question no, no, no! Please go on. Yeah, so uh, 2005 2010, that's hap- uh, the internet uh, became uh, more available, widespread, actually affordable, and um, and by affordable, at the same time, the mobile revolution was happening in India. So extremely poor people, and Nokia had a huge role to play. Um, so uh, they they managed to get mobile, and the mobile phones had internet. You know, so like Indians were on WhatsApp and uh, all of these social networking sites before most Americans were. So um, at that time. In Indian society, it was considered that the only way forward was education. This is still true in most of Indian society. Yeah. Uh, the only way forward is education. And the only kind of education that counts, and by counts, I mean something that will allow you to have a financially stable life and provide for your family, is either medicine, engineering, or law. Right, And the first pre- preference, of, co- of course, was medicine. The second was engineering. And the third was law. and And this is not my perspective on things, but... It was, it was quite well accepted and it was quite okay to say back in the day that, you know, the smart ones went, went to medicine, the slightly less smart ones went to engineering and the people who couldn't get into either went into law and everyone else went into the arts, right? So this was the kind of milieu I grew up in.
0: Yeah, and there w- was there a distinction between studying those things in India and studying them in, say, Europe or the US? I know, I, I understand that I think for, t- many Chinese students, if you're making it big, you go to the United States. And if you stay in China, it's, it's sort of less prestigious. So the, I might be wrong about this, and this may have changed recently.
1: No, absolutely. I think, so again, I'm only speaking about my generation. Things have changed now. So back when you went into engineering, you finished your bachelor's in India. And then if you could, uh, you, the, the thing to do was go for a master's in the United States uh, there are institutes in India that, that give pretty good master's degrees, but they are far more uh, research oriented, I would put it that way. Mm. And um, if you couldn't get into America, then you would go anywhere else. So that not only was that a prestige, you have to understand that for Indians, uh, it was important to have Indian successes in tech in America as a viable path. And already between 2005 and 2010, that was quite visible to all of us right? Like if you went there and if you were just smart and you just had to clear, like nobody expected you and not even your parents expected you to be a genius. But if you, if you were just smart enough and if you were willing to work hard enough, America was seen as the place where you could make it. So.
0: Yeah. And you say 2005 to 2010, what, what happened after 2010?
1: So it's, it's a, this is a very interesting part. And I think a lot of Indians, even my generation, they haven't really internalized it so the promise of getting into engineering, because it was very difficult to get into, right? Uh, the seats were competitive, and like uh, back in two thousand five ish when I was trying to get in, I, I like I wouldn't say I was definitely not one of the smart ones, absolutely not, right? Uh, definitely mm-hmm. mediocre. So you have to prep a lot, and you know you're competing for very few seats. And uh, we can we can of course come back to the cast angle on this, but yeah. Uh, but you're competing for very few seats, and uh, you know if you get in, the college might be expensive, and you can actually pay to get into colleges. Which okay, now I'm happy to admit that definitely my parents paid a little bit to get me into a college, which is quite common back then. Uh, Interesting. Would, okay. Yeah. Otherwise, I wouldn't have gotten in. You know, that's just the reality of the situation. Uh, doesn't have anything to do with how smart you are. There's just that many few resources, right? We're talking, we're talking 99.9 percent, right? So like. If the the country is 1.3 billion people and 65% of them are below the age of 35, just imagine the scale of the situation, right? Yeah, well,
0: and I mean, you know, there have been enough people, I think people don't talk about it quite so much, but it, it's pretty clear that you can pay to get into colleges in the United States too. It's often more, more roundabout and less explicit, but
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah, so what happened in 2010 was when when I got into my bachelor's degree, there was this, um, uh, you were almost guaranteed, right? So that's why parents worked so hard to get their kid into college. Because once you finish that four years of absolutely grueling, mind-numbing engineering education, right, it was mm-hmm. not fun for anyone. It's, not, it's It's boring, all right? I don't get why people hype up engineering so much. It's so boring. Yeah, and, but you, <laughs> right. But you get through it. But at the end of the day, one of the big and and what I call them, and they were that I call them IT body shops, right? Because they pick you up by the kilo, they pick you up by the ton. They oh, don't wow. care about engineering quality. They're like, all right, you know, we used to joke. Oh, they picked up about you know a thousand kilos. So there's about ten people they picked up from my college. And <laughs> all right, so um, uh, so they were going to pick you up at the end of four years, just because you had that degree. Uh, and of course, they were going to pick you up at a cheap rate because they were going to sell you as cheap consultants to the US.
0: But, I see. Okay.
1: But from an Indian pay scale perspective, so what we called it back then, so it was 4 lakh rupees a year. So in $2,010 terms, it would be, say, 1 lakh, about 50,000, so $1,000, about 50,000 rupees. So 2000 so about $8,000 a year, I think. Okay. In, in 2010 dollars. So that was huge for a bachelor's uh, student, right, in India. Like, you were made, like, you could afford a motorbike on your own. You could even, uh, you know, in in five years, you could put a down payment on an apartment in Mumbai. That was a big deal. However, between 2006 and 2010, you know what happened in the United States, right? Mm -hmm. So so at the end of 2010, you've slogged your way through this mind-numbing degree, crushed your hopes and dreams to get to the end. Oh, no. And your salaries have crashed. And by crashed, I don't mean like, okay, they've gone down 50%. I'm saying that people are picking up students for not $8,000, but like $500 a year.
0: (laughs) Oh, no. So, okay, that's really interesting to me. I I wouldn't have expected that there would have been that much of an effect. Was there just a reduced demand for that kind of support in the United States?
1: Reduced demand was a big part of it, but the increased supply was a far bigger problem. Mm right because just like me a lot of people got into colleges a lot more colleges sprung up like <clears throat> i don't know i i, I don't know uh, what the perspective people have uh, of how indian and indian democracy and market economics work but it is an extremely capitalistic place right uh, institutes yeah. pop up all the time the response to any sort of demands in the market is near instantaneous right
0: yeah okay that's that's super interesting because i i'm almost coming away with like a a bifurcated view of India, I did some consulting for a large firm that will remain nameless. And I had to do some some analysis of, uh, it was an economic impact analysis that among other things was trying to predict how much tax money would be generated if such and such a thing happened. And the, the remarkable thing was just how much licensing and how many internal restrictions on trade existed in India. And so I, I think I came away with it from a sense that India was maybe very heavily regulated, but I is there maybe maybe that's not nearly as complete as you might see in the United States, or it's only a certain sort of regulation.
1: Uh no, I would I would agree that is India a heavily regulated place? And if you, if you do try to do everything by the book, uh it's thing you're not gonna get very far. This oh, is just okay. <laughs> Yeah, this is just one of the reasons that Indians leave India. Life is just easier in other places, right? Yeah. Um, The way that I would put it is you have to be a certain kind of New York Times, Washington Post reader to believe that India's GDP is $2 trillion, right? You have to be completely oblivious to the fact that 1.3 billion people are actually doing well, they're coming out of poverty, and they're certainly not doing it by following government regulations,
0: I see that is really interesting and it hadn't occurred to me but it makes a lot of sense. Okay, so it's substantially higher you're saying.
1: Uh I mean I would I would put it as at least a trillion dollars higher.
0: Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well that that's I'm really glad to hear that. I mean I'm I'm all I wish places wouldn't overregulate but where they do I'm glad black markets exist. <laughs> and I'm glad to hear that people are doing well. Okay, that fascinating I okay cool please please carry on I didn't mean to interject too
1: much No so the whole story was how I left and I, I tried as well like I had pretty good GRE scores and that's the other thing that I mean there's so many factors uh, when we talk about India the, the main point that I want to get through you know I, I know that there are some potentially touchy explosive hot take controversial type topics we could talk about. But if there's one one thing that uh, I will have spent a lot of time talking about, and I will continue talking about it probably for the rest of my life, is a clear misunderstanding of the scale of things that happen in that country, right? So uh-huh. well, I'll give you another example. So uh, let's talk about the GRE, right? Now, the GRE is an incredible gift to Indians. Uh, I, don't, I don't think a single American can fathom how amazing the GRE is for Indians. Now, imagine a, a test... That basically checks high school level math, and it tests your vocabulary and language skills in a way that you can memorize for it. Now you uh-huh. throw a population whose everything, so social status, economic status, is largely determined by how good they are at high school math and memorizing vocabulary, and you say this is the barrier you have to pass to get to the promised land, right? So when you're talking, yeah. about, <laughs> when you're talking about inflation or demand supply, uh, the GRE was just easy and it allowed there's just too many people taking the GRE right which means there's still a limited amount of U.S. universities a limited amount of funding a limited amount of scholarships so yeah so even though I got a by American standards I got a pretty fantastic score in my GRE right so Mm -hmm. I think it was the first time I took the GRE I think it was late 130s out of 150 Uh Uh, but in the in the new in the new system of scoring it was above close to 1500 on 1600 back in the day right Okay, okay. uh, So, like, if you look at it from an American perspective, you're like, hey, man, that's a pretty good score. But in India, that's a pretty pathetic score. (laughs) Like, you had people people crossing 135 on average, you know? Like, if you got in the 120s in India, you were basically a failure. So, uh, um, yeah, that's what happens. And, um, you know, which power to them, right? The GRE is an absolutely fair assessment of how good you are at solving certain types of problems in a certain amount of time. And if you work hard enough, you can get very good at taking the GRE.
0: Yeah, I I have personal experience with this. I it was the one test that I ever took that I studied for, and I studied pretty aggressively. And I I think I got good results from that. I didn't study for the writing portion. Does does that trip people in India up? I think that might be a bit harder to study for. Extremely, although maybe they got rid of it.
1: No, extremely. It was extremely hard. I think it it um it was I think one of the biggest stressors. Some of the smartest people I know, it would trip them up, and uh, but but here's what happened: U.S. universities started weighing the writing section less, so they would just be like, "Hey, what's your math? What's your verbal? All right, we're good." Interesting. Okay, because uh, the U.S. universities at the time, and see, this is just one of the one of the many many things I. So I like America, but not just for the reasons that you can just go there to make some cash. You know, That's obviously a very good reason. But one of the reasons uh, that I have a great amount of appreciation for the United States is they l- look at it this way. The colleges saw this opportunity. They were like, OK, you have a bunch of really smart, hardworking people and they want to come in. And uh, sure, we have to support a lot of them with scholarships. But heck, if we let one of them in, the, one of them could end up being the next CEO of Microsoft. Right. So uh-huh. that's. Let's get them in. And what do they lack? Okay, they're not very good at writing in their, in in what is not their native language. So why don't we just open uh, an entire service center dedicated to teaching them how to write? And mm-hmm. that's what happened in U.S. colleges. They had these writing centers, and they would bring in these extreme GRE scorers, and they'd be like, writing, no problem. We'll help you fix that. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, what a what a boon, right? So they gave Indians scholarships when Indians came on board. They helped them on board into the culture and helped them get better at their writing. So overall, win-win on both sides.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I should say, when I was applying, I was applying to graduate school in roughly the period you were talking about. And, you know, I had a, one of the people that I was talking to and, and having writing a letter for me. Was very upfront with me when he said, "Look, every program that you apply to, there are going to be about two slots for white American guys." And he wasn't talking about something with affirmative action. He was just being real about the fact that it's a global market to get into these grad programs, and you're you're going to be competing with everybody. And it turns out there is a lot of everybody. And um, I mean that that actually was reflected in my program. You know that there were more Americans than you. Would have expected it a top tier program because my program was eh, it was fine it was decidedly middle tier but even there I I would s- we had a lot of people coming from India and, and they were wonderful so it's I mean I think a boon from my side too like I <laughs> yeah anyway
1: yeah I can believe that uh, I can hundred percent believe that but look if we're talking about in, Amer- Indians and and white guys let me tell you something that all Indians absolutely know and uh, I don't know. This should be just popularly known. The fact remains that if you take a bachelor's or a master's program in in a in, a, in a hard science, let's, let's still use that controversial phrase, but take yeah. any of the hard sciences, take a bachelor's, master's program from middle tier to top tier universities in the US, right? Everybody and all Indians kind of accepted it that if there's a white guy in your class. He's probably one of the smartest and most hardworking people you've met because white people did programs because they actually liked those programs. So if some if some white kid got into biology, he'd probably been into biology since the age of 12. Whereas if an Indian student, especially if he's coming from India, probably got into the program because of economic, parental, social pressures. So can we outwork other people sure but there's this thing that if you're willing to have hard work and you have an interest in the topic on top of that and 10 years of extra reading you've done by yourself obviously you're going to be ahead in the program right so that's also the reality of the situation
0: interesting i didn't know we had that kind of a reputation it's it's wonderful being seen through other people's eyes usually oh yeah yeah okay cool so um so okay so looping back to you so like uh 2008 2010 hit and everything dried up in India, so you decided to go abroad. So wh- where did you end up traveling? You said eight countries.
1: Oh, yeah. So I, I actually didn't decide... To, I, I didn't. I couldn't, right? I mean, so because of this market status, uh, I didn't get an offer of employment. I also was a, I was a bit of a weirdo, according to social standards, even back then. And I don't want to... I don't want to, like... You know, because I, I love it. Visa, Visa says this thing, and there's a Twitter thread about it. You know, as soon as you if a thing if there's one thing Americans will make a whole thing out of it right so yeah. you know like so I, when I would say I was a bit weird you know I don't want it to be my entire identity I'm pretty normy by most standards it's just mm-hmm. that it's just that when I was doing my bachelor's uh, people had a lot of priorities and I just uh, let's say didn't see the world the same way right okay um, and and I didn't have the same priorities like uh, people had uh, so i I don't know I had this weird, and I also kind of had really low self esteem when it came to academics. So even mm. though I got into an engineering college, I was pretty, I was pretty depressed, and I sucked. Like I failed my way through engineering, as they say. I would fail exams, I would take them again, I would fail again, and I would take them again. And my you kept rate, taking them though. I had to. What else was I going to do? I had to live at home with my parents. <laughs> like they were going <laughs> to, I mean, they were going to throw me out. Like uh, there, there was, there's no culture of working back in the day, you know, to make your own yeah. living or moving out. Uh, it's ridiculous. So, uh, yeah, I had to keep taking them because, I mean, you got to have a degree, right? What are you going to do? First of all, yeah. you're a loser because your scores suck and you don't have a degree. Uh, and that's one of the biggest, I would say that's one of the most drastic changes that has taken place in the Indian society in the last decade. Things are not as bad, right? So even my sister, I have a sister who's seven years younger than me. And mm-hmm. the the society that she talks about is quite, it has changed quite drastically, even in such a short time. So going back to the thing, I didn't have any job prospects. Uh, I definitely had U.S. school prospects, right? So my GRE score, like I told you, I took the GRE, got a good score, and yeah. I saw people uh, getting into quite quite decent programs, like like Carnegie Mellon. You know, I, I remember someone who oh, got wow. score, yeah, 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 Indians were getting into Carnegie Mellon, and it was a little more, it was an expensive proposition. But funnily enough, and this I don't know the reason for. I don't know what happened, but. Uh, getting a loan to be educated in the United States had become quite cheap by then. Like Indian banks were basically loaning you money for free. It was so, it was such a reliable, like people would definitely pay you back and chances of success were nearly guaranteed if a child made it to the United States from their perspective. interesting. So it was quite, it was quite easy to take loans, which meant that even, so I went to an extremely, extremely mediocre, low, mediocre to low tier engineering school in Mumbai and even my classmates got loans to study at top-tier universities, confidently, at cheap rates, right? So I know their family and economic situation. So these were not elites. Um, uh, but again, there's a topic of elites that we probably should discuss in terms of scale. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I didn't have a choice. I started working. And again, I'm, I'm now I'm pretty happy to talk about it. I Through connections, through people I knew, I didn't get a job on any sort of, like, absolute merit. I had certain skills. But I got a job with an Indian manufacturing company, and uh, actually, I started working in India, right? And I had these weird things. The reason I didn't go to the US was I felt, um, and this is extremely cringe, Indian value thing, <laughs> I feel it's weird to talk about it this way, but I, I, it, I felt bad taking more of my parents' money for what, what was obviously going to be a failed venture. Like, even if I took their money and went to the US, I was going to suck at it. I knew it, Right. Uh-huh. So there, there's no way in hell, as, as I'd already taken a lot of their money to get even this far, that um, that I would take more. So I said, okay, forget about it. I want to try to figure something out on my own. I even had a rock band back in the day. Here's something I don't talk about much on Twitter, but I actually had a band that got quite popular on the Mumbai indie circuit. Uh, we, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah, that's it's insane. But yeah, we... Um, that whole story is also insane, but and I don't talk about it much because I, you know, whatever it's it's a long time ago. But yeah, so I, you know,
0: I, go ahead. <laughs> maybe you should. I think more people <laughs> should start rock bands.
1: <laughs> um, absolutely, absolutely. I, that I agree. More people should start bands, and more people should do music. I still believe that one hundred percent. Yeah, it's
0: yeah, it's interesting that you identify not wanting to take money from your parents as an Indi- as a weird or Indian value. I I completely identify with that. I mean, yeah. my my parents have i oh shit i forgot to pay my dad interest this christmas because of covid um yeah. I, I have i took out a small loan for them in in graduate school but i was really insisted that it was a loan i was going to pay him back and they should charge me interest yeah and i so i don't know but maybe that's unusual
1: maybe i i'm not sure but the what i what i was referring to because it's it, there's this it's very emotional it's a very very emotional thing right because from an indian perspective like your parents the only reason your parents have worked as hard as they have, like I barely saw my dad until I was 18 because he was working very hard. And the only reason that they were working so hard is so they could pay for your education. So that emotional sort of angle was, was a pretty, it was a pretty big burden at the time. I have to admit it, it affected a lot of my decisions and it affected a lot of my mental health because uh, they didn't do anything for themselves. Uh, I'm talking, they didn't buy themselves clothes. They didn't buy themselves gadgets uh they were just like all of this money is just for educating the both of you so it there's no concept of a loan they're like whatever it takes we're willing to spend every last penny we have if it gets you the right education right yeah and this is not this is not an uncommon story uh in fact it is is extremely common i i know i have i have people who were my classmates the extent to which their parents have gone to fund their education everybody knew it right yeah. So, so it's, it's a very heavily emotional thing back in the day too. And it was crazy, you know, because they were insistent that I take their money, but I was like, no, they, I mean, I, 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 had too, I had too much, I, I always had way too much self-respect and dignity for my own good at many times in my life.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. So,
1: so, so you- yeah, so I got a job and the, the Indian company sent me to South America. Yep. Huh. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So actually when I say those eight countries, four of them were in South America or 5. Yeah.
0: Interesting. What what's the connection there?
1: Uh the Indian company had bought uh, a company in South America. So they I, I was doing some um, I was doing some really low level machine automation for them. So you know the machines that fill up automatically automatic bottle, bottle fillers, right? They mm-hmm. need to be they need to be programmed uh so there's a PLC attached to it and then you do some very low level but it's not it's not low level of course. It's not you're not writing machine code but it's a relatively low level and you, you program them in a certain way to do certain things. And those machines were being installed in that plant. So they trained me on that and they sent me there to do the same thing for them. And uh, I had a facility with languages. So I picked up Spanish really fast and they Mm. said that while you're there, you're doing these things, why don't you do these other things as well? Um, And from there, I just, it kind of just, I just took off for me, you know, like I saw opportunity and I kept jumping from job to job across South America, uh, I became fluent in Spanish and Portuguese and um, I had the opportunity then uh, then in I mean the, the, the turn, one of the turning points was in Chile. I was part of this group called Exosphere and the people attached to it were Skinner Lane and Andy Elwood. and Andy Elwood is someone who's on Twitter. He's one of my mentors. and he uh-huh. and Andy basically said and this is another thing about Americans that I absolutely it's fantastic and I think it is a very American thing. Uh, Andy was like, so I was just talking to him and he said, Hey, why don't you come? Why don't you just come work for me? And I was like, what do you mean work for you? I have no experience doing what the hell, whatever the hell it is you do. And he said, no, don't worry about it. I think, I think it'll work out. Don't just, just come on board, try it for a month. And if you don't like it, uh, you can just do whatever you want. I said, okay. All right. So then I, I did tallying. I saw my finances, uh, and, and I did it. I went, I worked there for a month. I liked it. He liked me. But then what happened at that time was I had been working already for a few years. And then at that point, I felt secure enough to be like, okay, you know what? I think I need a break from working. And now I'm in a position where I can actually afford to go to grad school quite comfortably. Mm-hmm. And note and note that, my, that I was optimizing for comfort, right? Which is why I chose Syracuse. Syracuse was a school that I knew I could get into with my scores, for sure. No stress. Uh-huh. I, I applied... Oh, to only Syracuse, basically, uh, and and I got in with a scholarship, right? So I decided, even though Andy offered me a job, very very grateful for it, to him, still we're still good friends to this day. Uh, I decided to go to school instead um, and kind of see see what the wider world had to offer. Of course, there's a lot uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of South American stories also, like like how the Argentinian economy crashed. So some of my savings were in Argentina, so I took a oh, flight. No. I took a was flight that- from Argentina to Brazil with a bag full of cash, and the Brazilians oh thought God. that I was. Yeah, 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 the Brazilians thought I was a drug dealer until they saw that I, I was carrying Argentinian pesos. At which point, they started laughing at me, and they took me to, <laughs> to they took me to the airport currency <laughs> exchange terminal where I exchanged a duffel bag full of cash for a slim envelope of U.S. dollars. <laughs> so,
0: Amazing! Was it this uh, 2013 crash? Yes, I can't exactly, remember. Okay, exactly, yeah,
1: exactly, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. And, and, you know, the way that I, I was with, withdrawing my savings in Buenos Aires and I was in a bus and there were strikes and people were throwing stones at the bus. It was quite something.
0: Wow. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, that that was one of the break the world kind of moments for me as I grew up in India, quite naive, thinking that the Western world was far more developed and civilized a place. The first time that uh, that a rock is launched at your bus window in, in Buenos Aires, uh, that shatters that image quite easily.
0: Yeah. So yeah. Okay, cool. So all right, that's that's an awful lot. I <laughs> honestly I, I imagine I could just spend ten hours listening to stories from your life. <laughs> um and I'm kind of inclined to, but um so how how unusual was this? I mean you mentioned, you know, sort of the social structure back in India and elites that maybe you weren't part of what where do, you fall, where do you fall in Indian society as far as your background goes? Are you more middle class or?
1: I think, we liked, I think we liked to think of ourselves as middle class. But if you look at it on paper, we have always been top five, top 10% of Indian economy, simply because look at the facts involved, right? When I, as a child, till adulthood, I never had to worry about food, clothing, and shelter. Bam, I'm in the top 10%. Wow! Yeah, never worried about that. We even had some extra budget for the occasional book, like buying a brand new book in the house. So, hundred percent, very, very. I grew up in luxury compared to a lot of people that I knew personally.
0: Yeah, I've I've not been to India, but I have I have sort of a vague impression that poverty exists there in a way that's pervasive and widespread in a way that's really unfathomable to someone who's grown up in the U.S.
1: Yeah, I don't, I, I don't think it's fathomable to most people on the planet, except for certain uh, Latin American countries that are as poor or poorer, uh, and, and probably some, some places in Africa. But otherwise, uh, just this, the way that people live their life on you know a dollar a day, three dollars a day, and you're surrounded by them, considering that they are the majority for the time that I was growing up. Is something that you have to grow up there to understand you know i hate this phrase but there is some truth to the idea of a lived experience mm-hmm. so so that 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 tends to inform so all of this striving that you see this culture where you're just like desperately trying to claw your way into the next economic strata it comes from there it comes from there like my my um my father, who's a very, very successful man, like, you know, my information is public. You can go look him up and things like that. He's very, very successful. I have seen the house he grew up in. The, the The walls of his house are made of mud. And, you know, that's not even a big deal because, you know, most houses back when he was growing up were made of mud, mud and cow dung, right? So, yeah, uh, you know, it's it's insane. I have met my grandparents, my grandfather, my great grandfather. I have met him. There's a photo he has of Gandhi. So Gandhi stopped by our house uh, on the famous salt march that he did. Yeah. So uh, so there's a photograph of that. Yeah. So there's a lot of, when we talk about poverty and trying to escape it, that more than anything explains everything about my grandfather's and my father's mindset. and, And has it bled into me in terms of an absolute terrifying fear of poverty? Yes. Yes. And it informs our worldview to quite a large extent.
0: Yeah. Well, okay. So, but you weren't elite either.
1: I mean, no way in hell we're elite, right? In no way uh, are we elites because there were real elites in India. In India, you had the kind of elites that you can only have in a society that was socialist. Right? Yeah, what do
0: you by that.
1: Well, what kind of elites exist in social societies back in Soviet Russia, uh, back in, you know, what is it, 1961, 71? Uh, I feel really bad for not remembering this, but India inserted the, wor- the word socialist in- into its constitution. India was not envisioned as a socialist re- republic. It wasn't so at the founding, uh, but it, it was inserted later on. And we had a couple of decades of socialist policies that have put India back by 50 years. Right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Is that what people talk about when they say things like the license raj?
1: Yes, that that is that is that is definitely one part of it. License raj just meant that you would you could get a license if you had enough money or if you knew the, knew the right people. It's very simple, you know. Yeah. Uh, so in terms of not being elite, by no stretch of the imagination, were we elites in the way that people understand it. Like in India, you have real elites. You have people who live in literal castles with actual like armies of servants and things like that. Um, and they exist till today, so yeah.
0: Yeah. And so, does where where did these elites come from? Were they were they associated with the British Raj, or were they just pre existing very rich families, or or was it something that was, and, and how did that overlap with caste? Whatever that. Well, maybe we should hold that mm. on that for a second.
1: Yeah, it becomes the, the only reason to not involve caste is that it just complicates the discussion. But yeah. the the the. Your your initial question is a very good one. Where did these elites come from? So there's a fantastic there's been a couple of fantastic papers on the persistence of elites across generations. So yes, mm-hmm. it is a mix of everything. You have pre existing elites. So during the dur- during the British times, people who were powerful already, or they got access to you know look even today there are Indian politicians who will say. Oh, you know, my father in 1923 was a. He cleared the British civil service exam and he went to London. Like, if he did that in 1923, how friggin' rich was that guy? Like, that's insane. Yeah. That is insane from my perspective, considering that, like, my grandfather did not step out of his village for most of his life, right? Yeah. So this this guy's dad's dad was traveling to London in 1923 because he was helping the British do whatever the hell the British did back then. Um, so yeah, so you'll often see those people continue to be the elites today. And this, and you know, everybody, everybody like loves to see themselves as the oppressed victims. That is true in India as well. But I guess when you're talking about a minority, that would make my family a minority as well. Because we were also brought up there with a really strict sense of whatever you are you're not a victim and i think that in itself makes you quite a bit of a weirdo uh, in indian society but uh, uh, but yeah so uh, we were not elites so there were pre-existing elites then there were some uh, you know members of the minority community so specifically the zoroastrians so they mm. managed to build quite big industries during the time of the british and they continue to be powerhouses in indian society till today then post-independence, uh, in the chaos of the partition and the aftermath, in the, when, when there was an emergence of certain types of political parties, association with that political party led to the creation of a certain type of elite as well. So even though in 1947, somebody might have been, you know, a, a definitely like completely poor villager, by 1980, they have become quite rich and powerful because they chose to be associated with a certain kind of politics. So broadly them and then certain families that were already industrial uh, pre-1950. So they had some family wealth and they managed to transform that into actual, like they they became manufacturing giants. Uh, Mm. So so they they are also part of this elite. Then post-1980, you obviously also have the cultural elite, right? So you have Bollywood, the emergence of the film industry. The impact that being an actor or producer or director in that industry allowed you uh, the influence, social influence, monetary access. So those were some elite groups that had emerged already by 1980, 1990.
0: Okay. And you mentioned something about size and elites, um, maybe with respect to American schools. Did I catch that?
1: Uh, I did, but I can't remember that train of thought now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, fair enough. Okay, cool. So I think... I think I at least have, Oh, and, and, and these elites, do they tend to send their kids abroad or, or how do they raise their their families? Absolutely.
1: Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. A lot of, a lot of them. And this is not true of India. It's also true of Pakistan. There's a famous saying that Indian generals. So talking about the army, right? Mm -hmm. There's a famous saying that says that Indian generals live on the border. Pakistani generals, families live in London, (laughs) you know, uh, that, and that explains a lot of the attitudes, uh, why India takes the military stances that it does, etc. There's a lot of like, I mean, there's a lot of skin in the game, you know. They live right at the border.
0: Yeah, so, okay.
1: Yeah. But yeah, they do send their, one of the more famous cases was in the state. So my father tells this story quite often because he also has pretty negative feelings towards such people. But uh, a story that I will never forget is when he was growing up, so uh, I hope most people are aware of this, but it's a revelation to many that uh, India has 33 official languages. Uh, Indian states are divided, were divided on the basis of language. And those languages are quite distinct. Some of them are similar enough to be almost dialects, but uh, but like there are many, many language families and they're not necessarily mutually intelligible. So uh, back when my father was in college, he, um, so bachelor's degree, right? He... Mm-hmm. There was a drive in his state, the northwestern state of Gujarat, to change all education in the local language. So, right, it it was sold under the guise of being patriotic or or nativist or local, right? So these were the buzzwords Mm -hmm. used to sell the idea to them. Uh, The implication of that was my father didn't speak English properly till the age of 26 or 27. Okay. And until today, the man is in his late 50s. He has made a living and he has traveled internationally. He still has these sort of uh, feelings about his abilities with the English language. Like that's, that's the kind of trauma that kind of movement can cause. Now, the, funny, the fun story here, of course, is that the man leading that movement, who went on to become the chief minister of that state, which would be equivalent to governor of a state in the US, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, uh, his, his kids were sent abroad. To study in English, (laughs) you know, of course. Uh, So, so yeah, um, that was the situation. But which, which, which is why I. uh, Oh, I mean, here's here's a fun fact, right? I was I went to school in Mumbai. The school's name it still exists till today. It's a beautiful school. Uh, It was called Holy Family High School. That Uh was my school's name, and it was a school run by Jesuits.
0: Okay, I figured. Yeah,
1: and. And we studied and I learned of the Bible and we had, you know, Jesus Christ hanging on a cross in every single class. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, we, our teachers, our teachers were not nuns, but our, most of our male teachers in our administration was actually Jesuit brothers. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we learned about Christianity, uh, Christian beliefs uh, far earlier than I did in my, uh, you know, even though I was from a Hindu family. So Interesting. Yeah.
0: Man. Okay. So, um, so I guess I did mention cast and Mm -hmm. I'm, I guess the, the explosion of Indians onto the internet that that we were discussing earlier and that the visa is predicting is is only going to intensify um, sort of, sort of intersects with that in, oh, geez, I guess we had those threads, those threads that popped up when Razib Khan was kind of debating some indian nationalists about what caste he was from or or even what ethnicity he was it's a little bit murky to me because it it seems like caste is an incredibly complex subject in which i have almost no insight neither do most indians really okay
1: absolutely yeah indians have a very localized view of caste as anything else caste in many ways is like uh if you go below the level of cities so there are four major cities in india mumbai delhi kolkata and bengaluru and if you go beyond those cities, caste is like water. But when you grow up in those cities, so me, a Hindu guy growing up, because my father, he you know, my father and mother both studied hard science subjects, right? Mm-hmm. So my, my my father studied entomology, you know, and my mother studied Bhattma. <laughs> so okay. right? And so we grew That's up so in sweet. a pretty Yeah. So my my mother, my mother, while a very devout religious woman, never ever, not once in our life, forced her ideas on us, the kids. And my father actually was an avowed atheist for most of his life because he had seen firsthand the impact of religion and caste growing up in a village as he did. I right? see. So um, yeah. Now, uh, so so caste is like water, but caste is also very very local. The interpretation of caste across India varies widely. And uh, there are some things that you don't have to, you don't have to have a PhD. In fact, if you have a PhD in caste, that's a little bit sus, right? Like what the hell have you studied? Who have you learned it from? You can just for yourself, as most people, you know, you don't need, you can just look at the numbers for yourself, right? If you look at the numbers for yourself, you will realize one glaring fact that the majority of the country identifies as lower caste, where lower Mm -hmm. is some values by population so we're talking about 7 to 800 million people identifying as a lower caste so that brings up many many questions right it means it means that that the idea that the models people have of the world so there's this model that i have seen just blatantly completely mindlessly being used that there is some sort of equivalence between high caste people and what is happening with white people in america it is not even wrong you know it's so wrong that it's not even there's no point in talking about it.
0: Yeah. That, that might be a good reference point just for making a distinction. Like how, j- just to begin to grapple with with this framework of, I don't know, status or something, like how, it, is it just something that you would separate completely from the way that people talk about race in the United States? It sounds like the answer is
1: yes. Absolutely. There is no connection. First of all, there's very little connection between the way you look and, you, and your cast. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay. Nearly, is there some connection in the north of India? That's another problem we're talking about in India. You're forced to talk about generalizations because yeah. there's no way you actually want to delve into the nitty gritty because you cannot, because it's almost fractal at the level at which it applies, right? So the caste, yeah. politics, the caste politics that make sense at a national level don't make sense at a state level, don't make sense at a district level, don't make sense at a village level. And the reason you have to go through these fractal layers is because the country is so damn big. It's the largest democracy on the planet. And it is a true democracy. It is not an American democracy with just two parties even though nationally it translates to the same layer of two parties.
0: Uh-huh. Uh,
1: but, you know, in, in India, party switching is the norm, right? It's, it's a volatile politicians? set of... Absolutely. You can just switch wow. parties. It's a very common thing. You're like, forget it. I'm, I'm now a member of that party because, you know, locally my people like the prime minister more. So bye-bye. And they might switch back to the original party the next term. Right?
0: Interesting. D- does that lead to a pretty volatile political situation at the top or does it all sort of cancel
1: out and and attain some kind of stability? It used to be much more volatile than it is. Uh for the last a couple of decades it's been quite stable and it does quote unquote cancel out in the sense that you're saying. But as Narendra Modi gets older and inevitably, you know, like he's reaching an age where he will not be able to perform his duties, I predict and I'm willing to bet some money on it as well, that it's going to become volatile uh, once more.
0: Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Well, that.
1: But you know, I guess, like, let me, I, the, the one thing I would like to say at this point is volatility is a feature of democracy. It was intended to be this way, right? Yeah. So, yeah, that's true. When people in America, especially after the recent events, they talk about democracy almost like they were talking about some sort of a dictatorship. And I'm like, I'm sorry, chaos is the point of democracy. If you don't have chaos, that means you have hidden factors that are sort of ensuring the stability of your society artificially. You are supposed to let resentments rise and express themselves through votes, right? Through the change of political affiliations. So,
0: yeah, I I think I agree with that. And I think it's probably worth thinking about for everyone who's American in the audience or people who have opinions about American democracy. The, and, and I think you're completely right to, to point at something strange that was... I don't know, almost I don't want to say there was a stranglehold on American society, but you know, you look at the two-party system as it existed, especially after the New Deal. I mean, I wish I had read the the latest uh Scott Alexander post about this, where he was talking about maybe in the 1950s, not not a strange increase in partisanship, but like an unusual conformity. And I think there's something there. And I, I have some ideas about it that are probably too long for this podcast, but I really like this alternative vision about some kind of some kind of chaos that, nevertheless, coheres into into a you know, I don't know. I would call it a stable nation. I mean, I don't see India going anywhere. Oh, did I lose you?
1: Hang on, yeah. Sorry, I was muted. Um, no, India's not going anywhere. I, I agree with you one hundred percent. Yeah. I was so, very, I was very pessimistic when I left India, and uh, and uh, and listen, oh, if we're if we're going to be talking about what India was like in tw- two thousand five and two thousand ten, the Congress Party, the Gandhi family was ruling India, and this Gandhi family has nothing to do with the Gandhi or the original Gandhi, you know. Yeah. These, this is a family of straight up criminals, absolute fraudsters, and they destroyed the the man they put in charge. Uh, did 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 probably as much as you know. Uh, the 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 making of india into a social socialist republic did to fee to make the youth of the country back then feel very pessimistic about their prospects in country.
0: Huh okay. Yeah. So,
1: so go ahead.
0: Yeah so I guess I I have two more thoughts. One is that we should probably touch on what what you think it's gonna be like in the west if large numbers of of indians come onto the internet and and just kind of start co-locating and the second is what else should we know about that that i definitely don't have the context to ask about and and that is going to be really interesting and that maybe salient to everybody anyway
1: one thing that i would like to point out is something that i don't understand why americans are missing out on the most popular show, one of the most popular shows on Clubhouse today is run by two Indians who haven't even lost their accent, right? And literally, yeah. the power elite of Silicon Valley visit that show frequently, right? So <laughs> the, the CEO the CEO of Microsoft is Indian, the CEO of Adobe is Indian, and these are not mere cultural shibboleths of a sort that, oh, look, our guy's on top. No, this reflects not only... Uh, the the ability of indians to actually get to the top it also implies the existence of a american culture that truly allows merit to rise right what did these guys yeah. do? what did what did arthi and shriram what is it that they did 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 they take advantage of some sort of inherent privilege that they had i mean probably the amount of privilege they had was what allowed them to get to america to to come to grad schools but everything they did to get from grad schools to hosting a show on Clubhouse, where uh, you know Mark Anderson or or Steve Ballmer are coming and talking openly, is all their own effort. And this also implies a culture that recognized their effort and talent and allowed them to rise. Right. So this is not something that's going to happen. This is something that's already happened. The future is here in that sense. It's just not evenly distributed. But for mm-hmm. me mediocre like from a, from the median perspective no, i was going to say mediocre from the median perspective uh, it, the the coming online of a lot of indians implies a lot more cringe Amer- you think americans have seen cringe you have seen you have seen nothing till indians come on like we are the nation of good morning with the flower photo sent to our entire family group chat every morning at 8am right and that's not necessarily a bad thing indians are yeah, i was going to are- say that sounds sweet yeah it is sweet Indians are an extremely a lot of like if you if you don't see if a lot of behavior doesn't make sense to you Indians are an extremely social kind of soft soft-hearted people you might hear a lot of uh, stuff about that's that's nasty about India but you know if stuff if you weren't you should be more worried if you weren't hearing nasty stuff from a country of 1.3 billion people because there yeah. is there is a country that exists today where you don't hear much of these things from for a reason, right? But uh, but all in all, uh, you will you will see a lot more striving. You will see people who are working. It's the same thing. It's It's the people who are willing to work hard. But one of the other things that Americans might not capture is the significant size of India's domestic market. So there are stars, like web stars, stars that were created after 2010 on American platforms like YouTube uh, that th- they live pretty good lives. Like culturally, the idea that you only have to do engineering or medicine is changing quite rapidly. And that has implications for the production of culture uh, mm. for the next 30, 40, 50 years, where while today we, everyone lives in America, like, you know, growing up 2005, 2010, we all watched American TV shows. You know, people in Mumbai were, uh, were completely cringing and copying lines they learned on Friends. It was terrible. I hated it even back then. <laughs> because because you know because look i lived in new york okay no no freaking way that 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 chick was living in new york on a waiter salary yeah right so, um but but yet uh you know it didn't make sense in the social milieu point being that uh we live in america right now but unless unless you see some a lot more movement culturally from china in the next 40 years and and 100 percent that might happen and you know from my perspective, I welcome it. The more diversity, the better. You're just going to see a lot more production of pop culture come from the country, but you're also going to see a lot more conflict, not real conflict in the sense that, you know, it's going to set off some horrifying things, like conflict in the sense that, like this thing, like, you know, what Americans consider to be, quote, unquote, a thing, Indians take it for granted or take it as a reality. So whether it comes to chaos in politics, whether it even comes down to certain kinds of violence, you know? Like while gun violence may be horrifying, it's kind of become normalized in America, but, you know, actually punching someone in the face is the norm in India. And you're like, okay, well, I guess they just had a fight and then they fought it out. So it's okay. Um, but also the way we talk about people, the, the things that it's okay to make fun of and not okay to make fun of, like you will not be able to cancel India. That's all I'll say.
0: Yeah. <laughs> too big to cancel. It's too big Man, to cancel. I, yeah. Yeah. Um... You mentioned China. What I I can almost see. I mean, I think the three largest pop countries by population in the world at this point are, are the United States, and China, and India. And I mean, th- there's been a lot of at least geopolitical tension between India and and China recently. And I mean, of course, the United States doing whatever whatever the U.S. does. Um, do you do you see that continuing culturally, or I mean, even frankly, just politically?
1: Oh, absolutely. In a big way. Uh, I don't know if you've heard, but TikTok was huge in India and then it was banned. Oh, India yeah. Has, India has just proposed a Twitter alternative. See, these are all these are all cringe moves that are going to turn into something serious in the next decades. Right. Like the yeah. idea that the Indian government could have a Twitter alternative. Ha ha. But you go down a decade from now and things begin to look really, really different. Right. I mean, Balaji Srinivasan just moved to Bangalore and Singapore. If, if there's one thing that can predict the future reliably it's that guy yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> so uh so yeah so you you might laugh at things now and there there will there's going to be plenty to laugh at in the next decade that you will not be laughing as much about in the decade after
0: yeah no i agree i mean that 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 point about indian gdp it is definitely going to stick with me i mean it 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 seems like you know when i'm looking at the the shape of the world and where growth is happening It seemed like India was really lagging, but of course, black markets. Of course, black markets, which I I just love. Um, Cool. I don't know. Um, Is is there anything that we haven't touched on? I or is there anything that you want to ask me?
1: Um, in terms of in in asking you, I I, I, I'm I'm very curious about this because I feel very differently. I think I have a very uh, naive, optimistic view about America. Do you? Do you personally genuinely believe that this this spark that makes America what it is, the ability to accept new talent, give them platforms, the ability to trust by default and say, okay, we'll give you a second chance to succeed, a lot of things that made America great, to use that phrase, do you genuinely believe that there is some sort of a decline happening on a personal level?
0: That's a good question. I I think at a superficial level but I hope not at a deep level. I mean, you know, you talk about the, those two CEOs who came from India who now run, what is it? Microsoft and Adobe, right? Mm -hmm. Like that seems like something that could still happen. I think that a lot of what's going on in America that feels like decline is maybe just some chaos being, being reintroduced after, you know, a really long period of something like political stagnation. And I don't, think that whatever shakeup happened or started to happen in 2016 or maybe in in the aughts is is going to stop anytime soon. I mean there're just too many long-term structural problems. What I'm hoping is that that leads to something like, you know, creative chaos rather than just internecine war. And will that happen? I, man, I don't know. I think it will though. I I think there's still a lot of energy that's just waiting in the wings, but I'm not quite sure. Okay, go and ahead. It, yeah, it's I, I don't know. I, I don't think anyone in the United States has lived through a period like this. You know, maybe maybe if you stretch back to, to the Great Depression and talk to some some very older Americans, they would have something to say about it. But you know, my grandpa's deaf, and it's really hard to have a phone conversation and pick his brain. And I, I haven't been able to travel to to get his take on it. So TBD I think there's a lot of potential for something like a revival. And I think if that happens, it's going to be pretty exciting.
1: I, I believe the same, uh, not only because I, I'm really fond of America as a place. I have many friends there. Um, and um, I, 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 look, I, I actually live here. I live in a Nordic country uh, for the past four years nearly. Europe is a dead player. It's a dead player in, in Samo Buria's term. And I my feeling is that the, the chaos that is happening in America right now is actually an indication that America too is a live player. Like today, if, if someone were to still ask me, and people did, people reach out to me on Twitter DMs all the time. They're like, hey, I'm in America, I'm in Canada. What's the situation like in Finland? Would you, would you still move here? I'd say, depends on what you want in life. If you want to get ahead in life, America is still the place to be.
0: Yeah, and maybe as long as that's true, we've still got a chance. I mean, you know, the, the the whole bromide about this is a country of immigrants is you know, it gets overused, but I think it's still true. And if you look at tech, especially, like my god, you know, I probably two-thirds of the people that I work with on a daily basis are are immigrants, mostly from the subcontinent, you know. And I I think that genuinely is a real strength that we have that. You know, hopefully, doesn't get choked off. That Biden reverted the H one B thing, right? That Trump put out.
1: I don't know. I don't know. It's all chaos to yeah. me. Uh, I've yeah. stopped. One of the reasons that it made sense for me to also leave the U.S. because I didn't want to get into that H one B trap. Yeah. Uh, although they offered, like, it's it's just a, it's a personal matter. the The company I worked for, very kind. They were so. You know, it's not like I was a I was I wasn't like the top machine learning engineer there. I was just another one of the guys. But they were so. Nice about it. They just came and said that, "Hey, we know this is a situation. If you'd like, we're happy to apply for you. We're happy to sponsor your green card." And you know, how can you not love a place like that? You know, I'm just here doing doing my nine to five job, and and you're willing to go to bat for me. It means a big deal.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, you know, I almost hate it that like that people even have to go to bat. And I mean, when I'm when I'm thinking about American culture and American society, it it seems like major issues are doing this on the spot. I mean it seems like the main stranglehold that exists right now is is sort of a you know a semi elite like people people rag on the professional managerial class and I think that the extent to which they've grown strong really is a problem. I mean they they've always existed but I think that control wasn't nearly so complete even you know in the 80s and the 90s probably even in the aughts and something something went very Badly awry, I think probably in the 2008 crisis that hasn't quite recovered. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know what a Biden presidency looks like. I it seems like people are really adding more fuel to the fire and culture wars on a daily basis. I had hoped it would taper off, but it doesn't feel like it's doing that. But I mean, maybe maybe that's even fine. I mean, your your point about Indian political chaos is actually pretty encouraging as as a sign of you know just. An energetic and growing culture, and I hope that's what it represents here, rather than you know just just a bunch of dead players burning themselves out. So TBD, but I'm I'm glad that you're interested in success. You know, it's it's heartening to hear that.
1: Yeah, absolutely, uh, all the way. So full support, full faith in the American people and American democracy. I think I think the next century is going to be super exciting.
0: Yeah, me too. Well, I'm I'm going to be looking at India. I think with uh, newfound interest, and you know, really crossing my fingers for you guys. I, not even crossing my fingers, honestly. That hearing you talk about the country just leaves me to expect it's going to succeed in in really exciting ways. And you can put me down as an Indo futurist.
1: Fantastic.
0: <laughs> All right, cool. Hey, thank you so much for coming on. this This has been a delight, and you know. Anytime you want to come on again and talk about whatever you like, by all means, platform is yours.
1: (laughs) Great. It was fantastic talking to you. I'll continue lurking on your Twitter timeline.
0: (laughs) All right. Thanks, man. Take care.
1: Bye.